This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, thank you, Ben, for being here for our first event of the Cassie Wolf Center's Global TV series, and particularly at a very busy time for you. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Um, then I wanted to say before we start off how very much I enjoyed The Hollow Crown and your truly exceptional adaptation of Richard III. And from some emails I've received from members of the audience, I know I'm not alone in that perspective. So I'm very excited to talk with you more about it today. And perhaps we could start with um, a, a question as to what brought you to this particular work. I suppose as dramatists, where an interest in Shakespeare comes naturally to us. But what draws you to Shakespeare as an adapter in particular? So my background is um, was in theatre originally. By the time I, I worked on The Hollow Crown, I'd been working for 12 years on, in British theatre and a lot of that in classical theatre. So I'd been working at the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, and a lot of that work was uh, in a dramaturgical capacity. And indeed, some of it was working on Shakespeare's plays. And indeed, some of it was working on Shakespeare's history plays. So um, when I first spoke to Neil Street Productions and the BBC about their desire to reimagine Shakespeare's history plays, and they actually started uh, three or four years before we made Richard III, when we did the first tetralogy of plays and the first um, four films, Richard II, the two parts of Henry IV and Henry V, um, which were part of the BBC's um, uh, sort of the Cultural Olympiad, um, the, a moment of kind of great ambition in, in the BBC's drama department. And for Sam Mendes, who's, um, who runs Neil Street Productions and executive produced the series, a real desire to find a new way of putting Shakespeare on film. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s, the BBC filmed um, the whole, all 38 Shakespeare plays in a kind of huge um, project, one of the sort of great um, Rethian sort of projects of the BBC, about, you know, that the BBC has always existed to deliver. And there was very much a sense, going back to the history plays with a, a new generation of actors, a new generation of filmmakers, you could do something with similar ambition and bring audiences to these stories. So I really wanted to be part of that in terms of uh, making the screenplay adaptations. And I did it for two of those films in the first group and all four, all three of the films in the, in the second group. Um, and, you know, it was, remains one of the most rewarding things I've, I've ever done because the possibilities of storytelling on screen when you have material like this that you're working with is really fantastic. I've got a grin on my face because I'm just imagining how enjoyable it must have been to work on the project from your standpoint. And I'm really interested, Ben, um, to hear about your work as a dramaturge as well as a playwright in the theatre and at the National Theatre, um, which, which I suppose feeds into my next question about the process of adaptation. I think that's something that I, I would love to ask you a little bit more about in terms of the particular challenges of adapting Shakespeare. And perhaps uh, you could speak a bit about your process on, on this film in particular 
Um, how did you approach this work as an adapter as well as a writer, presumably with a dramaturgical as well as a as well as a playwright's mind? Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really interesting. The work that I've done as a dramaturg in the theatre has been almost equally divided between working with living writers on new plays and dead writers, sometimes long dead writers. And um, the strange thing is how similar the two processes can sometimes be in terms of, um, you know, you, one wants to feel like there is a collaboration going on, a live collaboration with the text. And even though the, um, the, the person you're collaborating with isn't there, their, their material is. And if, if you ask the questions of the material, you start to, to yield the kind of um, conversation that you, you can have with a, with a living collaborator. Um, certainly that's the case in the work I've done on Shakespeare um, and the ch the challenges of adapting are, you know, in the theatre, the challenges of cutting Shakespeare or um, textually um, engaging with Shakespeare are kind of obvious that these plays are, you know, on the whole, some of the most well-made pieces of writing ever, ever made for the stage. And there is a, a fluency and a shape to them. And you, you cut them and interfere with them at, at your peril. And I say that having, having done it an, a number of times, you have to be um, incredibly careful. And one has to really un try and get deep into the text to understand the intention, which isn't always the kind of the first intention that you that you read before you can start to I mean I guess I guess I think the job is always trying to make those intentions as clear as possible for the audience in the who are experiencing it live in the present moment. And sometimes that does necessitate shaping, cutting, reframing. And um, of course when one thinks about doing it for the screen there's a new kind of freedom because you have to, you sort of have to take the plays apart and then put them back together as a screenplay because of the, the you know, just completely different mechanisms of storytelling on screen and the rhythms, pace, performance, um, everything about the framing of the of the lens that that screen storytelling gives you necessitates. Um, um, quite a complex reimagining of the of the text. Yeah, well, there, that raises a number of really interesting questions for me about about your adaptation in particular. I, I love the fact that you mentioned co-writing because that's something I'd like to talk with you more about. But before we get to that, um, perhaps we can talk about some of that process and you know, diving in and cutting and moving things around. I um, during the course of preparing for this, I, I went through uh, and watched it on screen and, and went through and. and did your cuts and movements and trace everything out in my book. I was just filled with admiration, both as as a scholar of Shakespeare and as a writer for the the intelligence and the um and the sort of um um the pathos that you brought to the adaptation. One of the things I particularly admired was the way that you paired back the story, the sort of surrounding noble story, to really focus on the stories of Richard individually and the story of the the queens and their experiences which in turn allowed you to really foreground the agency of the female characters. 
which has sometimes been a fraught um, question or a prob uh, troublesome issue in performance there because of the seeming compliance of Richard's machinations. And so here in your adaptation, I think as a result of your cuts and movements of text, Anne and Margaret and Elizabeth and the Duchess of York are shown to have a lot more power and in some cases, very direct uh, prophetic agency in Richard's downfall. I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about that choice of how you brought Queen Margaret forwards and, and sort of um, showed Queen Elizabeth triumphing over Richard in that wonderful scene when he's trying to uh, get her to promise a, her daughter to him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm really I'm pleased that you you kind of felt that um, that refocusing or an, an, the attempt to refocus the narrative onto the, the experience of those women. I mean... What what is I you know I sort of feel like the most important thing about this film is that it's the third part of a of a series of films. It's it and my frustration with watching Richard the Third in the theatre has always been this yeah, extraordinary pyrotechnics of the protagonist and the and the plotting meets you know the problem that it is in the case of the the original play the fourth part of a of an enormous cycle and only by going through the henry the sixth plays do you get any kind of understanding really of where this man has come from but but more than that where king edward has come from george of clarence and especially i think queen margaret duchess of york even Anne's story is very, very hard to understand if, you know, when you meet her in that uh, early scene of the, the play and film, if you haven't followed the story of her family that's been told in the earlier parts of the, the cycle. So for me, it was really about, and, you know, critical to this was Dominic Cook really wanting to foreground, the director really wanting to foreground particularly an understanding of Margaret's story. And I think Sophie's, Sophie Okonedo's performance in this film is really magnificent, but it's even more magnificent in the context of her work in the previous films and the, the way she's taken that character from a young woman to the, you know, to the uh, woman who's in the final shot of the, the series at the end of this film. Um, I think that opening up the narrative to really really look at the whole of the Wars of the Roses and this as the culmination, but not a separate thing. I mean, when I think of a really huge admirer of um, Ian McKellen and Richard Longcrane's film um, of Richard III, but it's a different, it's a different animal because it doesn't have that, it does, just doesn't have that context. It becomes almost entirely about a single performance and a, and a sort of internal journey to that protagonist and the political atmosphere that it creates. But I think we felt like we wanted to be able to have a slightly broader canvas. And I think when you get to those scenes with the Queens, with Elizabeth, with, with the Duchess of York, with Anne, and when you have the encounters with the ghosts, the sort of the climactic um, encounters of the piece, you really benefit from the context of the the bigger story, um, so that was that was sort of right in the centre of our thinking as we were making it. And that's one of the things I admired about the elegance of of your work with the text was 
the way in which you were really drawing on the um, the visual style of film to yeah. do that, um, you've got, of course, that wonderful reflection just after Richard's been crowned of Margaret in his dagger. Um, and then, of course, um, the presence of Margaret in the staging of the scene when Queen Elizabeth and the Duchess of York stop Richard's troops mm -hmm. to sort of suggest perhaps almost, uh, as I was reading it, perhaps a, a note to Macbeth and the witches. Yeah. Um, and then additionally, of course, the magnificent uh, introduction of her into the scene as the direct sort of agent of the nightmares and bringing him through his his own psyche. We have those kind of moves in space, but not in time of her bringing him through the kind of guilty conscience. And to me, that was a very elegant move because it took all of the the elements that we can use in visual storytelling of film while sort of um, doing a very neat adaptation of the text. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sort of spoke to the the way in which you worked with Shakespeare, as I would argue, as, as a co-writer, um, as you've mentioned it. Um, and before moving to that point, I mean, one of the one of the things that you do uh, additionally is a lot of very fine work in the lines of dialogue, sort of fine cuts and sutures of lines together. So as well as quite large trims, as we've talked about, and sort of removing some of the machinations of the nobles. Um, and your work there, I think, is seamless, but also, I think, very beautiful in places, the contribution you bring. One thing that I was really struck by was in Act 4, Scene 4, when Queen Elizabeth and the Duchess of York go to mourn the grave of the princes. The way you trim, uh, and Killy Hawes does it much better than I ever could, but Elizabeth's line to, are my young princes, are my tender babes, if yet your gentle souls fly in the air, hover about me with your airy wings. You take those three lines out of a much longer sequence and man, it just, it gave me cold chills. And so to me, I was like, he's co-writing this with Shakespeare. And I wondered if I could ask you, how did that feel? Um, wow, well, thank you. That's uh, as, as kind and uh, that's generous. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are practical considerations, right? The a production of Richard III runs in the theater for over three hours sometimes. Um, you have to, you have to abbreviate. And with film, the the camera is going to do so much of the work that he's doing um, rhetorically and in his verse. And um, it's only it feels like it would be a huge disservice to the genius of the writing not to not to give it its best chance to, to shine. So those lines are, yeah, that, that poetry is devastating. And, um, you know, the, the level of em raw emotional articulacy that those characters have in that moment and, and critical for the story, right? You can't, can't tell the story of the death of the princes in the tower without finding a moment to, to try and honestly reflect the grief and the, you know, and the loss that that's gonna that that's gonna engender. So um, it's critical to have it, but then how do you give it, it? How do you serve it in the best possible way in the context of this scene in film with these actors in this space? You know, the difference between the context for which that speech in its full length was written, the the open stage of the globe um, with almost no contextualizing scenic design. It's an entirely imaginative moment. Here we're, we're trying to release the imagination of the verse with everything else that we're able to bring to it as 
film filmic storytellers so yeah i mean i guess that's what the intention always is i think you know also i i because i've done a lot of um cutting and adapting of existing plays you sort of start to get a level of confidence with it but also um hopefully a sense of when enough is enough when you can go a little bit further when i think it's always about clarity for an audience and that everything is absolutely um it's possible to understand what this is and sometimes the density of a text like this makes that tricky and sometimes uh, a thinning out of density um is really helpful and re and releases some of the uh material it's a really fine uh difficult thing but um i i really appreciate what you said about it thank you yeah well a very well judged a very well judged approach and i think that when speaking about that that sort of thinning out of the text to clarify of course in addition to making cuts you're intervening in the text by um, firstly, making some para paraphrases, I suppose, to have some of the more abstruse Elizabethan um, phrases a little bit more clearly for our audience, clarifying sort of names of characters, which is a notorious problem as you shift through the histories of the various characters suddenly all having the same names as they inherit the titles. Yeah. Um, and also adding writing to sort of help to suture some of your cuts. I suppose that leads me to wonder, what was the process of what did it feel like i suppose what was the process of adding your own words into the play um look i mean i think you have to be really clear about that you know i'm not um i'm not going to deliver a shakespearean history play writing however um and this is where dominic cook is such a um brilliant um collaborator, not just a brilliant director, but a, but a brilliant um, person to work with on the development of scripts. And, you know, he's someone who he ran just um, as we were doing this, he just finished his time running the Royal Court Theatre in London, the preeminent sort of playwrights theatre in in London. And his, um, his sense of how to serve the writing is really, is really um, fine and really encouraging to me to know when we were going to need something that felt that was always sort of a pragmatic thing, a solution. Um, the plays don't need me to write great new um, speeches for Richard um, or indeed for any of them. But sometimes, as you say, there are the the cuts, the rearrangements, sometimes the elision of characters or moments needs um, bridging or um, yeah needs some kind of not sticking plaster but but almost sticking plaster to, to right do it. right and there is kind of I guess the the key things are uh, a simplicity um, an attempt to have it go relatively unnoticed though obviously you've spotted it jim um well, only because i was sitting there with a pencil sort of going through i didn't i didn't spot it on my first or second viewing it was the third viewing when i was really kind okay. of okay. pausing that i only started to know that's good um because yeah i mean that's the that's the idea there are some really you know there are some really famous and phenomenally successful passages in the play and you want to give those all the the space they need to to work on an audience. Um, but there are other parts of this play which are complex. You know, this is not, we're not talking about the Shakespeare 
who wrote King Lear. This is, you know, uh, 10 years, nine, 10 years earlier, probably. And there are, there are things which work really successfully and things that I think work slightly less successfully in the full length um, original text. And that needed to be, you know, you've got to try and deal with that. I think it's your responsibility, as I say, to try and serve your your co-writer, your collaborator, Shakespeare, and um, make it the best version of itself. And so, yeah, sometimes there are small pieces of um, quite hopefully simple, pragmatic, direct writing that just get you to the next, get you over the hurdle of whatever that cut is. What was your approach to meter when you did that? Was it was meter something that you sought to maintain with the cutting and the sort of um, yeah. additions that well, you made? Yes, where possible. I mean, it's not a play where everything is entirely right. Metrical, uh, yeah. In terms of the pentameter, it's 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 um it slightly comes in and out. So there is the space where you can do it. Um, often that is a conversation with Dominic and with the actors involved. So you you can try. You don't ever want to you know, have it feel rhythmically um, awkward. But also, I don't think that, I think that if they, there could have been a level of self-consciousness about trying to write pentameter to always fit. And I think it's a, it's a sort of delicate balance between the two things. I mean, you're certainly aware of it. You want it to feel rhythmically appropriate, but it's not necessarily a straitjacket in this particular piece, yeah, I mean, when I was when I was watching it and going through it, I didn't go through and sort of trace items and you know trace the feet. And to me, it all seemed like it was metrical. So I, uh, it was interesting to ask sort of how that was approached. And I suppose there one are of those unfinished I lines. I think there are some lines that right. take six or eight rather than ten beats. But often that's a often that's a kind of choice and a thing to do with the actors and the rhythm of the scene and where the next line is coming. Right. In. Um, and I noticed that you would on occasion, um, particularly I think in act. For two, when he's when he's um, talking to his plotters, you you cut off, you you sort of let them talk over lines in a way that was perhaps more naturalistic, but contemporary acting style than previous, which I admired as well. I thought that was interesting. I mean, I making Shakespeare on screen, you've got to find a an approach to the verse that in in performance that really that really addresses that. Otherwise, there's a kind of you know as um, contemporary audiences saturated in in watching screen performance, it um, it feels really crucial to do that. And actually it makes me think of that section of the film and Dominic's, when Dominic puts Richard, put Benedict in the bunker room and sort of closed the film in around him. I think it does become interior. It does become kind of slightly different kind of film for a while. And the performances change at that moment as well. So I, I think the writing probably changes too. Quite a remarkable moment there. I read that he was in, inspired by downfall and uh, in the sort of monochromatic um, colour tone of, of, of the mise-en-scene there. And, yeah, really, really remarkable performances. The, what we're speaking about, I suppose, ultimately is intervention in the text. And, I, you know, sometimes there's a feeling that Shakespeare's text is almost sacred and shouldn't be touched. And I feel like as perhaps as practitioners, um, we're more used to diving into texts and moving them around and perhaps have a, an understanding that, at the time they were being cut for performance yeah. and that our text itself, you know, is possibly the, the, the process of what, two manuscripts, five quartos before it reaches the folio. Yeah. So how do you feel about 
about, I suppose, the broader question of intervening in Shakespeare. It, it sounds like something that we should be comfortable doing as performers to serve the story for the medium it's in. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I yes, I would. I think that there is, I think there is no value in like radical intervention for the sake of radical intervention, but nor do I think that there's any value in um, a kind of dogmatic adherence um, to to what is uh, what are imperfect texts. We know they're imperfect texts. We don't. There's no. This is not. Um, there is that theatre texts are live anyway, but these particular texts are imperfect and their providence is imperfect. So what are we, what are we doing? What are we holding sacred to? A whole set of intentions that we can only uh, guess at. And I feel like as artists, it's our responsibility when we are engaging with them to try and to do our, our level best to understand the intentions and serve the intentions of the writer in whatever the new context is, in this case, a film. Um, but, but that, and know that that might mean stepping away from absolute um, faith uh, to the, in the letter of the work to sort of try and find a, something more true about the work, maybe. Um, and so I, I really feel that in, I think, Shakespeare and performance often benefits from an open relationship with the text and is often suffers from a closed relationship with it. Um, and that doesn't mean that every play should be cut to an hour, an hour long or, or, you know, played backwards or anything. But I do, I think that there are, we know this as we study the text. There are uh, elements that feel supremely confident in their execution, and there are other elements where one might feel justified in wanting to um, to make changes. And you know, the the text continue after your individual production, your individual film. Other people can do something different with them, but I think that it is one has a responsibility to the audience to try at least and bring, you know, uh, bring as much clarity and purpose to it as you can. Well, I certainly think that you and Dominic have done that uh, with the plum in your adaptation. Um, perhaps um, uh, there's a very interesting discussion from my standpoint about, about the adaptation process. One thing I'd love to talk about is um, the casting. I really admired the way that the Hollow Crown cast actors of colour. I mean, too often the historical uh, dramas that we see erase people of colour from early modern history. Um, and I think that that um, casting is bolstered in, in your adaptation by the enhanced roles, not only of Queen Margaret played, as you say, so admirably by Sophie Okonedo, but also the roles of Catesby played by Paul Basley and Captain Blunt um, played by Ivana Jeremiah. Could you tell us a little about that creative choice in terms yeah. of um, expanding those roles uh, and, and casting? Them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the casting right back at the very beginning of the Hollow Crown project, um, I remember Sam Mendes and Pippa Harris, producers, talking about um, a kind of prog uh, progressive energy to the casting. And it certainly felt like the, the, the fact that we were making these on film shouldn't enforce 
a kind of literalism that we have already moved away from in in Shakespeare in theatrical performance in um, in the UK and in a really you know the the discourse has moved on so much from the point where the BBC made those uh, its cycle of Shakespeare films in the early nineteen eighties and I remember. Lucien Masmati's performance in Rupert Gould's film of Richard II and Paxton Joseph in Thea Sharrock's film of Henry V um, as really kind of central and galvanising elements in those in those films. And um, I know that when Dominic came to think about casting these plays, it felt absolutely integral that there was... I mean, I I... Think I'm right in saying I might be remembering this wrong, but I think that Sophie was cast first in the in the whole cycle. That we knew that she was going to play Margaret, and that you know all of the times that I'd seen the plays on stage, the, the Henry the Sixth plays as well as Richard the Third, the the line of Margaret through it. She's the only character who's in all of it. I think that's true. Even Richard and the the brothers don't arrive. Yeah, I think I think that's right. The second play of of Henry the Sixth, so it in a really in a really profound sense, they're sort of her films, and they were built around her. Um, in terms of the other the other characters that you mentioned, I I know that Tatesby certainly was um, a really uh, useful way to hold quite a lot of different. Um, Lieutenants, servants—I I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many characters are uh, are aligned in him, but there are a few. And you know, Paul Baisley is an actor I know well from his theatre work, and you know, he brings such a, a kind of sophistication and a, a nuance to that performance, and you get you get a real person there, and and a. And one of the challenges of the history plays sometimes is there are some really extraordinarily vivid protagonists and then a very broad cast of right, lots faceless of, lots of generals and lieutenants. And by amalgamating a few of them into a character like Catesby and by giving, you know, an actor like, or basically that kind of space to be charismatic and interesting on screen, you start to... I think solve a little bit that issue and build a real relationship between the servant and the and the king. And that's done so. I mean, so wonderfully well that that com- combination of character um, of Catesby into sort of a uh, henchman, a consigliere, sort of a, a hatchet man, as it were, for King Richard. And as you say, to explore that relationship, I think he's the only person that doesn't ultimately fall out with Richard. I mean, ultimately, at the end, he's still there by his side. And so to me, that was sort of a, a wonderful moment. And also, of course, admiring the moment. Um, and Sorry, Jim, I'm not there. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, yeah sorry, I didn't know what's just happened um, there. Um, so uh, I really admired the way that um, Captain Blunt's character was, was further brought to prominence as well, particularly through killing, killing, um, killing Richard's horse at the end in such a pivotal sort of plot moment. Absolutely. I mean, again, you know, the same the same thing. Try and look for potential lines of interest through the through the original text that you can put together. And obviously, you know, the horse is it's the most famous 
line in the play. It's, the, it's, it's an offstage character that we got to bring on stage, you know. Um, and yeah, it, that all of that work and Dominic's, you know, visual sense of that and work with those actors is really um, critical to the success of the film. Yeah, no, uh, well, I know. Well, I think it's a it's, it's it's a wonderful change to the text. Um, I suppose to, to to pull back a bit and look at it from from its uh, its medium. Uh, the question I, I'm I'm sort of posing is: Is the Hollow Crown film, television, neither, both? And is this even a question? Are these terms we should even be using anymore in a streaming uh, circumstance? Also, of course, understanding the context that in the UK, I know that I mean I'm just thinking of um, shows like Luther and uh, Endeavour. You do often have feature length episodes in miniseries yeah. what, how would you describe it film tv neither both i suppose i think that there are a series of films i think they're too i don't know i mean look you know television the, the thing that we call television now has a level of visual uh, ambition and scale that means that as you say the distinction might be sort of um not not an important one to make but Certainly, they. The first season of the Hollow Crown, they were more contained because the plays were individual plays, and because each had a different director. So right. the aesthetics and the um, the sort of cinematic language of each one was quite different. You think about Rupert Gould's film of Richard II and Thea Sharrett's film of Henry V. They're quite different approaches to putting Shakespeare's history plays on on screen. So they feel contained. The second season, this season of the the Wars of the Roses, was more. There's more obviously uh, coherence and consistency in terms of the the cinematography, the music, the the design of them. But I still feel like, particularly in the writing, they are they're contained um, films, and the Richard the Third is quite a different beast to the the two previous ones as the the play demands it to be and it's only the the fact that you finish the characters arcs that i was talking about earlier and those narrative arcs that i think really enrich richard the third if you have them as context it's those that that tie it to the earlier uh the earlier film so i think it's somewhere between the two that's my answer to your question that's no, that's really helpful. It's interesting because I and, and actually I think that the the extent to which the history plays and serialized is sort of a vexed question in scholarship it has been since the the forties and probably earlier, um, and so it seems to me almost there being a tension perhaps between the marketing and the paratext of this film where you have like previously on in a sort of televisual style and the films being marketed um, as a television series. But then, as you say, particularly in the first in the first series, very distinctive films. So I think one of the things that I love about this film is, I suppose, from a from a, a form a formal um, standpoint, it kind of reifies in it that lack of certainty. I don't think we could ever really know yeah. um, whether they were intentionally serialized. I think my my feeling as a creative, as well as someone who studies these plays, is they probably went, well, this we've got to do this one next, so let's try and stitch them together somehow rather than having a grand scheme to it. But So that, that's wonderful to hear your perspective on it. And, and you can see um, he's got his own previously on sometimes in uh, Henry Henry the Fourth, Right, right. And the, and the chorus in Henry V. You know, it's going, those of you who saw it, this is what you saw. Those of you who didn't, this is what you missed. Now let's move to the next bit. 
um, I think that there is a kind of a pragmatic uh, thing embedded in the original text about that that we've, we've echoed, yeah. What, I mean, why do you think that, I mean, you talked about how Richard III is quite a distinctive film in the series, and I really agree. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure that Richard III is one of, if not the most performed um, play by Shakespeare. Why do you think it's such a perennial audience favourite? I mean, I think the, um, the writing of the central character and the opportunity for performance that the central character gives is this sort of obvious and easy answer and the the lineage of that part in performance from Burbage to Garrick to Olivier to um right um I was thinking when I was I was thinking when I was just before we started about the first a, a book I read when I was a, a teenager and studying the play um Anthony Scher's Year of the King which is his diary right Richard III, one of the best, if people don't know, one of the best um, books about the the craft of, of acting and of Shakespearean acting particularly. Um, he played it in a famous production of the RSC in the 80s. Um, uh, the, the character is, there's a level of, of, of writing um, of the audience's relationship with Richard, complicity in his crimes, um, a sense of daring the audience to not fall in love with this Machiavel that then turns into something darker and harder as the as the play and the story continue and you feel the playwright's confidence in saying I I I dare you to laugh, I dare you to enjoy watching this man seduce the widow of someone he's just killed. Um, because at some point he's going to do something that you can't laugh at. And that journey is, um, I think, you know, um, uh, people like Harold Bloom write about this, like, and Stanley Wells write about this, that Shakespeare's invention of character and, you know, the invention of the human, the, the sudden arrival of the idea of personality in, in into English literature and, and Richard III feels... In, integral to that to me there's a whole load of other fascinating and wonderful things about the play and what it says about civil war and um you know we haven't talked about this yet but its portrait of the mechanics of populism and rise the rise to power of a of a charismatic um absolutist um leader that are incredibly nuanced and politically sophisticated ideas about the relationship between the public and the, the politic. Um, but above all of it, I think, is Richard and the audience. Um, and, you know, you get in a performance like Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in this film, such a, a consummate um, and uh, you know, just, just such a piece of craft in the way he he rides that wave of audience and character, I think. It's um, really extraordinary. I was um, reading that he, he studied the diaries of Taths when he was wearing his role. 
in the play, which really fascinated me um, as a performance choice. And then, of course, the you know, sort of the, the the soliloquies from Richard encouraging us to sort of laugh when he's doing horrible things. It reminded me, in a way, not to suggest that um, Fleabag is as evil as Richard III, but that similar kind of um, stylistic approach of speaking to the audience, bringing you in on that journey, and sort of seeing how long she can hold you as she does sort of more and more outrageous things. Um, yeah. reminded me in the same way of it's 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 you know it has a great heritage that particular technique absolutely and you know you in on the on stage aside finds its parallel in in the direct eye contact of a performer you know i mean and the, um, even more direct um, borrowing of it i think is uh in the house of cards you know both the british right and, right and the american remake the um you know there is a there is an immediacy that we enjoy as an audience. And so one can do something quite morally complex with that. If you, you know, as, as actually, as I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge does when she invites you, when you're, when, and when you aren't going to judge this character's behavior, given how much you like spending time with them. And I think Shakespeare's doing a version of the same thing at a slightly different level. You mentioned the political context that we're writing in, um, or that you're writing in, rather. And of course, I suppose you must have been writing this in what 2015. If... Yeah, exactly. exactly. So I suppose now it's it's become even more pronounced with um, with uh, American and British politics. Um, I was reading Stephen Greenblatt's new book, Tyrant, which sort of traces um, political power in this way. But um, is is that something that you now look back on and see? Was, was that resonating for you when you wrote the, the play, the sort of rise of authoritarianism? Like, yeah, I feel like we were just at the very beginning of, we weren't at the very beginning, but we were just before the moment when I guess in both countries, the, right. the explosion of, of this, the new, this new populism really became impossible to ignore. And I think, you know, certainly the idea of, the management of the presentation of personality to get to gain political um for for the political ends was um very live and we were we were thinking and talking about it a lot um we've what you know we've watched the the man who's now prime minister in the united kingdom had been on already a very long journey of um creating a public persona that was all about a kind of, um, well, there are different ways of talking about it, but either- a, I a think we've probably got a fairly similar viewpoint here that we're- Yeah, right. Around. And you know, there's been some brilliant writing about like the ultimate clown and what that, what that means and how you, you can hide behind that mask for quite a long time. And you watch the, the section of this film and story when Richard appears to the citizens of London with his two priests and oh, it's a wonderful performance. The crown. I mean, this is a very um it doesn't like this is feels like a very, very resonant um kind of thing to be talking about, I think, for us. Um and the speed with which you can move from that kind of manipulation to a sort of absolutism and totalitarianism is right. Um is really, you know, something that I think makes the makes the story one for today. Yeah, and speaks, I suppose, perhaps to the 
constant ability to reinvent Shakespeare's plays for our own eras. Um, before I turn to some questions from from our audience, um, Ben, there's just this one question I wanted to ask you, I suppose, just to conclude is, if you could be yourself back in Elizabethan or Jacobean England and go to one of the first ever, the, the, the first outing of one of Shakespeare's plays, yeah. what would it be for you? I think for me, it would be Romeo and Juliet, but Macbeth and Richard III would be pretty close seconds. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I guess there's um, there's something about you know the um, end of Shakespeare in Love for all its um, yeah. for all its che- cheesiness um, it is kind of irresistible in the way it it reminds you that the end of Romeo and Juliet might not have been known to the audience watching it for the first time the end of Richard the Third would have been known to them probably most of them but I, so I think I'd, I'd try and choose one where they were gonna not know the ending. Um, and there's a few, there's a few, I mean, obviously there's a source material for a lot of the plays, but there's a, there's a few where either the ending has changed or the ending is entirely original. I would, I would love to be, um, I would love to be the first night of Macbeth. I think that sounds pretty good to me. I always love the scene in Shakespeare in Love where the Puritan who's been swept in at the end is weeping and clapping. I feel that's a, that's a wonderful sort of little note, uh, historical reference. Um, I'm going to answer, ask a couple of questions from the audience now, Ben. Um, and uh, the first one uh, from Audrey is, um, I find the scene with Richard wearing Anne to be one of the most difficult scenes to interpret, especially in terms of Anne's motivations. How did you approach adapting this scene? Yeah, I thank you. I really agree. And it's something that I had seen work and really not work in performance before. And I remember we had just a little bit, not a huge amount, but a bit of rehearsal time with Benedict and Phoebe Fox before shooting the film and talking a lot about it. I mean, I think, I think the text is ambiguous as to doesn't give us fully Anne's motivation. Um, certainly, I think it's critical to understand the the situation she finds herself in, in terms of her grief, in terms of the real and present threat that she and her family are in, you know, we have to we have to somehow put ourselves in the in a civil war context when understanding the choices that people are, are making. Um, it seems to me that the least interesting choice is a woman is over the course of 500 lines persuaded to fall in love with somebody and um, much more interesting to get into the um the sort of the context of the choices or lack of choices that she has in those moments and i remember uh phoebe's sort of determination to do justice to anne and the strength of anne and of course you know what you see in the the scene with anne is the first person and for large portions of the play, the, the only person who who goes blow to blow with with Richard and matches him in terms of um, imagery, speed of thought, her aggression, you know, the um, their duel, their sort of verbal duel is a duel of equals. And, um, and I think that that's really important to remember. But um, yeah, as I say, I think, uh, it's really about dramatizing her lack of choice and the way in which um, she she makes decisions to 
to protect herself and her family in the end. Yeah, and again, such a wonderful performance by Phoebe Fox in that scene, as you say, to bring that kind of, to, to go at him head to head for the first time. Um, another question we have, um, um, Robert Watson asks, could you talk a little bit about the relationship between the round mirror and the crown, which seems so richly suggestive? Yes, I think, I think I'm right in saying that we were, to, we were talking right at the beginning of the hollow, obviously the series is entitled The Hollow Crown, but the very famous passage in Richard II when he is giving up the crown and he asks for a mirror and shatters a mirror. Um, and the idea of reflection, the, the king's view of themselves, the gap between the, the king as read outside of themselves by everyone around them and their reading of themselves and what the crown represents in that. And there are large parts of all of the plays. Richard II talks about this, Henry V, and the uh, little touch of Harry in the night sequence. Henry IV gives us the passage about the hollow crown. And um, it was something that, that we talked about all the way through. And I think Dominic and, you know, the, the team he had around him were looking for these kind of visual motifs. Um, there's a section in the second film where the brothers, the three brothers see each other in the, in a reflected in a sword and they have a vision of themselves as three sons, which is a beautiful piece of writing in the original play. And we, I think, the film found a visual equivalent for that and that then continued right through into Richard III and this duality of the the mirror and the crown the you know the so much of Richard's um so much of what Richard says of, of himself is to do with self-image the um spying himself in a looking glass decanting on his own deformity the idea that that the mirror could be manipulated to represent the version of yourself that you want and the idea that the crown can do the same i suppose is all split things going on underneath this it's really fascinating it was interesting because when i when i saw queen margaret's stamp on the mirror in that wonderful moment in sort of act, act one scene three i think it is i was wondering whether it was tying back to of course, a wonderful moment of Richard II. Um, so that's great to hear. Uh, another question, of course, one of the, the, the central um, elements of this play, which we haven't talked about yet, is the fact that it has a, a disabled character as the protagonist. Of course, is a, 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 a lot of um, rich recent scholarship in crypt theory, for example. Um, and so Jeffrey Ulrich asks, um, one of the young princes, even pretending to be deformed like him, uh, which he does in front of him, can you talk about the process of adapting this particular scene? I'm thinking back to Long Crane's um, example of, of, of the prince jumping on his back and Richard turning on him like a boar, but how, how was the process for you in adapting this, Ben? Yes, and I think I, I go back again to Year of the King, which describes this moment and likens it to, I'm gonna try and get, I'm, I don't have my, my books here because I'm in New York. Um, I think that Anthony Sher then talks about Brando in The Godfather playing with the, the young boys and being a sort of gorilla with the young boys. And I think, so I, I think there's a, 
there's a lot of um of thinking and commentary on this particular moment um and it seemed to me that the prince should do the thing that nobody else until richard encounters his mother really and later in the film does the thing that nobody else does and talks about the thing that nobody else will talk about um you know i think it's the representation of disability is something i feel complicated about and i'm not sure i think even in the six seven years since we were working on the film i think there's so much as so much has changed and i'm i'm not sure yeah i'm not sure i would make this film with a with with these casting choices actually in 2021 um that's personal uh thought and i don't i can't speak to anyone else involved i just feel like we are we are moving into a different kind of um representation and uh particularly in terms of shakespeare and the more that serious thought is given to what it means to have a disabled protagonist in this play the more um you know we need to think about those choices yeah absolutely i was thinking a colleague of mine um kate mulvaney a wonderful australian actor and playwright um um has a similar um medical condition and um played a, a wonderful richard iii for the sydney theater company i think five or six years ago which was interesting i mean it's wonderful to see um i suppose uh, to to just think finally about the the way in which i suppose you're working in a new medium uh with visual style um um one of our uh um our excellent uh, colleagues here at ucsb miguel penabella asks what was the process of adapting the action of the play or moments that didn't necessarily have explicit dialogue or stage direction? How much artistic freedom did you give yourselves? I'm thinking um, specifically about sort of some of the wonderful scenes that you visualize, like when you intercut the two orations of Richmond and Richard at the end and sort of have the parallel scenes of them riding into battle while you were recounting those things. What was the feeling of sort of uh, how much artistic license, I suppose, did you take um, with, with those visuals? Well, I mean, you know, one of the one of the most extraordinary achievements of Shakespeare's history playwriting is the the way he theatricalizes battle and the way he um, delivers you a battle like Bosworth Field without being able to to bring on any of the scale, you know, the the sort of the the theatre mechanics of the the globe stage or the rose stage were were you know supremely limited the he's he's limited to description to a kind of rhythm of exit and entrance which is critical for battles in these plays um and there you know the movement between richmond and richard um is a good example of that but i think that we felt we could do a lot and bring a lot to the visualization of these sequences and that you know the the scale of what you could achieve in these films would enable uh, but both to remove come back on some of the text and um, that functions in, in a just purely descriptive way but also fill in some of the gaps um go a little bit further in certain places, give you a sense of space and a, a sort of contextualizing sense of these 
um, these two armies. Um, there's a there's a lot that one can do, and I'm just thinking not only in terms of not only in terms of this film of Richard III, but in the two earlier um, Wars of the Roses films, there's there's a whole sequence of battles that on stage becomes almost um, indeterminate from one another. And actually, one of Dominic's great insights was to try and find really marked, markedly different textures and flavours, you know, a forest battle, a river battle. Um, Bosworth Field sort of opens out to be this epic mud bath, but the, um, you know, the the landscape of those hills and the movement of horses down hills were all things that I think are suggested by the text, but that we were really able to open ourselves out to include. Well, it's certainly a visually spectacular ending. Uh, and unfortunately that brings us to the ending of our presentation. So I, I want to thank you so much again, Ben, for taking the time to join us. I know you're very busy at the moment. I personally just was hugely uh, enjoying our conversation. I could keep doing it ideally over a pint, perhaps at the Swan Bar at the Globe sometime in the future. Um, so this was wonderful. And I want to just extend um, uh, the best wishes of myself and my colleagues to you for the Lehman Trilogy on Broadway. And also to thank uh, the Cassie Wolf Center uh, to thank um, Professor Petrice Petro, um, Petro and Dr. Emily Zinn and uh, Miguel Penabella in particular uh, for putting uh, this event together today. And thank you all for being here in the theatre. There'd be a rich round of applause uh, rippling towards you, Ben. So I hope you can imagine that. I'll imagine it. Thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.